Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That's Absurd. Please elaborate. I'm your host, Julian Hugan. And I am also your host, Trace Dominguez. Of course, just like every episode, each of us has asked the other an absurd question, tasking them with going off and researching what the answer to that absurd and silly question is. Uh, I'm pretty excited for this week's. But before we get into that, uh, I just like catching up with Trace uh, and hearing, you know, what sciencey news has been kind of on your mind since last we spoke? Ah, there's this one story that stuck out to me. I, you know, keep apprised whenever I can of the scientist news. You know, the Goddard Space Center in Maryland, right? It's one of NASA's many centers. It's Mm -hmm. where actually a lot of their animations come from. You use a lot of there. There's some satellite control there. Anyway, long story short, they got a new top dog, if you will. Oh. Yeah. Uh, This new person, let me just pull it up on futurism.com where I happen to see it. Dr. Mackenzie Lystrup, she was sworn in last Friday, first woman ever to lead that space center. And she, like everybody who's sworn in, has to take an oath. Mm -hmm. So what do you think the news story is? What she swore her oath on? A Carl Sagan book. Very nice. The Pale Blue Dot. The Pale Blue Dot, yeah. And I was just like, oh, that's awesome. And they said, normally I would pass on these staged pictures, but people have noticed something unusual about this photo, and it's her being sworn in with the pale blue dot. And that, I just think that's great. That's nice. Yeah. That what, nice? So long as whatever you're swearing in on is important to you, right? Yeah, I think so. It's supposed to be, you know, there's nothing about the swearing in part that's like, put your hand on a book of religion. It's just like, it's a ceremony, and you're supposed to swear, But what you're touching when you swear doesn't necessarily affect the swearing part. Yeah, like John Adams famously. Was it the first John Adams or the second John Adams? I don't remember. But one of the John Adamses (laughs) swore in on a a book of laws when he was uh, taking the oath of office to be president. That'd be fun. What What book would you use? Would you... What book? I mean, I love Terry Pratchett like Discworld books, but I feel like a little color of magic paperback would look inappropriate. That'd be pretty fun. And be kind of, or like Good Omens, but then a lot of people would think I was like a satanic cult worshiper because <laughs> Good Omens has like a demon and an angel working together to find the Antichrist. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite Neil Gaiman and uh, Terry Pratchett co-authored nice. collaboration. Fantastic. If Terry Pratchett is my favorite and I feel like he gets no attention from American audiences, but he's freaking brilliant and hilarious. And all of his books I always describe as like sci-fi disguised as fantasy. There's like dwarfs and uh, orcs and all that stuff, but he'll write about things like concepts like plank time and and like yeah. base entire stories around that and oh so, that sounds great yeah so i love pratchett as like a science fiction writer so probably uh it would be something like terry pratchett what about you what would you swear in on you know my first uh, my first instinct was highlights magazine because that <laughs> you know who doesn't love highlights magazine doing the finder you know ooh, where's the lollipop in this picture you know that's pretty awesome everybody feels good about highlights magazine so, So um, my dad is from Barcelona originally, and he immigrated here in the 70s. And uh, a few, well, over a decade ago now, he went and he got his Spanish citizenship again. And I was young enough that I was eligible just to get it because he was getting it. Yeah. I figured, you know, it'd be cool to have a European passport. It would be nice. And um, they made me swear an oath to the king, right? And uh, normally, if you're Christian or Catholic, you know, you swear on a Bible. But if you're not those things, you just have to promise to do your very (laughs) best to protect the king of Spain. That's nice. Yeah. That's like very trusting. (laughs) I pinky swear... That I will defend the Spanish crown is basically what I had to do. Look, I don't want you to get in any legal trouble, so I'm not going to ask you whether you've, you know, gone through with that promise. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can trust me, whoever the king of Spain is currently, that I am your guy, probably, if push comes to shove and I'm ever in a situation where that would be important. If the king needed to cut me in line, that's not what I promised, king. No, Okay, I'll defend you but i'm not you're gonna have but to you're gonna have i've been in this line for galaxy's edge for hours now <laughs> how am i ever to gonna back. get on the matterhorn I, no i didn't expect to see you here king of spain <laughs> at, at disneyland, disneyland. 
Disneyland. <laughs> but I For suppose you need a vacation from kinging sometimes as well. That's right. I, no. I, do they do they even do anything over there at this point? Probably not. I don't know. They just get to be king now again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's kind of nice, probably. I, for a person with this citizenship, I know very little about my adoptive country. Sounds like we're going to have to find a way to work that into the show at yeah. some point. <laughs> so it says here in this article that Dr. Seuss, a Superman comic, and any number of non-Christian religious texts have been used by American political figures, quote, for centuries. I kind of like the the Superman comic. I mean, I'm not a big comic book nerd, but I get sort of sentimental about like Captain America. Yeah. And, like I have a Captain America like T-shirt that I actually love. I like wear it on election days and like kind of really proud of the idealized values. And I also just love Chris. This is Chris Evans. This is embarrassing, but I can't think of who plays. Him. I just no. You have to say a Rolodex and I just of, love Chris Pratt, and then we have to move on. A, a Rolodex of Chris actors went through my head and I was like I know one of these guys is the Captain America actor and I really like him but in this exact moment I can't remember which Chris well I'm a bad Captain America one of the Chris's so today we've learned that Julian has a lot of strongly held beliefs but doesn't have a lot (laughs) underneath I, I will I defend have... you, King of Spain, whoever you are. I, I love, love you, Captain, Captain America. Whichever actress. Chris. <laughs> I'm a mess. I think I think my brain's at like storage capacity, and it's just like, no, we don't remember stuff anymore. Oh, we don't. That, we don't do that anymore. That was a good segue. I have to jump on that. So that brings us then to our first segment of the day. It's Chris Evans. It's totally Chris Ow! Evans. No, uh, he's not the segment. I knew it. If he's listening, Chris, I swear I really like you. <laughs> You seem really nice and a good embodiment of Captain America. Actually, yeah, I agree with both of those statements. Chris, if you're listening, why do you have two first names? Who started that? I want to know. Well, and he's plural Evans. He's more than one Evan. That's right. As a man with a brother named Evan. It's confused. So our first question of the day, what are thoughts made of? Yes. This is a question that Julian, you asked, uh, and I did the research on. It was very fun. But tell me, how did you come up with this question? Since we've started doing this podcast, I've allowed my mind to wander a lot more in day to day, kind of like just waiting for it to stumble onto an absurd thought. And this was one of, I think I was sitting in the car next to you when we were getting lunch, and I was thinking about thinking, which is philosophy, by the way, just yeah. so you know. That's Definition what philosophy is. Right there. And then I thought, what is this? thought that I'm having like what is it like tangibly Mm. what's happening that's making this thought a think I mean like yeah so you're thinking about thinking yeah philosophy and while you're thinking about thinking you're thinking about thinking about thinking and then you're thinking about how you're thinking about thinking and what is making you think about thinking and what that thinking is yeah I think that's right clear got it This was fun, and it was especially fun because when Googling it, I came up with a video that you did about this exact topic. Yeah, I may have (laughs) forgotten about that. Which is great. (laughs) Which, again, goes back to my... My failing brain. I've been building too many scale models in a poorly ventilated room, I think is what's happening. But I didn't use it because I didn't want it to be like, oh, Julian, here's your answer to it. But I did in part use it for part of my answer. Okay. You're going to have to tell me if my research was any good. It was good. Okay, good. It was solid. I didn't only use that. I looked up a bunch of different sources and I found a bunch of different studies. Um, And I think the first thing, when it comes to a thought, you sort of don't really have to define it. We all know what a thought is, and there is no solid definition because it's not really a physical thing. Mm -hmm. It's an interpretive thing. Thoughts are interpreted by our brain from ripples and waves of energy, electrochemical energy, moving from one brain cell to another across trillions of different synaptic connections. That sounds nice. Yeah, Yeah. it sounds really nice. Yeah, I'm totally with you so far. (laughs) So, To understand what a thought is, we sort of have to dig into some of the terminology there. Okay. So when you do that, you got to think, what is thinking? And that's technically a thought is just part of a pattern of activity in your brain. And 
it's really hyper complex. So the short answer is like, if you wanted to go and do something else on this after this, you weren't, you're done with this podcast. The shorter answer is we have no freaking idea what a thought is, except that we can describe it, but we can't like tell you, oh, you're thinking about this, right? I can't look at your brain and say, here are your thoughts. These mm. are the thoughts. And these are like the signals that do this other thing. You can't yeah. read my mind by looking at a picture of it. That's right. Yeah. I mean, sort of, because scientists did do that. Right. And I talk about it in my answer. Oh. So we'll get to that in a minute. But first, I want to start with something we haven't done before and I'm really excited about. In the 1950s, uh, which I have to say is like a time when every scientist was a mad scientist. Like when you look back in time, you're like, you just did. You just, they just let you do that. Yeah. Like ethics weren't invented yet in yeah. the 50s. Because they did some crazy stuff. Yeah. This uh, Canadian neuroscientist, he was one of like the first real neuroscientists scientists um i don't mean real like there were fake ones i mean like he was very celebrated oh he's a canadian named dr wilder penfield graves and he was doing some brain surgery on a woman i'm not sure why she was awake which is fairly common in brain surgery because they need to make sure they're not you know damaging you right uh and so he would use a very quote mild electrical current to stimulate the surface of her brain that was open to the surgical room and i actually have a video do you do you want to see do you want to see the video? yeah okay do you want me to describe it for our listening audience that's yes that's my goal here so okay um okay so i've got this video here let me flip my laptop around okay we're starting with just a, a, a brain here here we go a mild electrical current applied to the surface of the brain okay he's he's poking the brain causes a patient to have a memory from his own past sometimes looks really gooey dr graves i assume right there pointing at the brain that he's gonna poke and I, this looks like the woman that he's going to yeah to brain poke or post brain poking if he's got a photo of it i heard what sounded like an orchestra playing and I asked the nurse where it was coming from, Where's, and she said, what music? And I said, well, that music, and then it stopped. So, so, so he pokes her brain, he shocks her brain in a certain spot, and she hears music. Yeah. And then, and then he asks her to hum the music she heard. Is this not wild? Yeah, that's pretty wild. Yeah. So... How? <laughs> so we don't know exactly, like, I don't know in my research. I didn't. Uh, it's very complex as to how the brain is put together. Oh, I've heard that about the yeah. brain. Yeah. But what we do know is that he stimulated just the surface of her brain during mm -hmm. this surgical procedure. And she heard this music and she was able to sing it even later, which is interesting. And she was asking people, like, do you hear that music? And she, no one else heard it because it was only happening in her head. Which is crazy, right? I love the brain. It's such a weird organ. Okay. So he more or less used a very small amount of electricity to stimulate the brain and create, well, trigger a memory and mm -hmm. thoughts. So what are thoughts made of? We have no idea, but obviously electrical signals are involved. Yeah. And this is what we started to understand. So a brain cell sort of looks like a Dr. Seuss palm tree, right? A truffula tree. Yeah, right. exactly. So it's it's called a neuron. Uh, it's got a big root system on one end at the end, long end of the trunk, and a big bulbous cell body on the other with some leaves kind of coming out of it. Uh, they all have names. I'm going to go through them all. So right. the leaves that you on can the make a sneed out of, right? That's right. Yeah. I don't know if you can sneed up a couple of neurons, but you know, yes. maybe we can try. Need a lot of them. So the leaves on the bulb side are called dendrites. Mm -hmm. Then there's the kind of cell body, which just looks like a cell. It's got cell membrane, a little nucleus in there, and then the trunk part that's called the axon and then the roots are the axon terminals and then the roots at the bottom of the trunk kind of spread out and those are axon terminals with the synapse the very famous synapse on the end right the little separation between other nerve cells that's right? right yeah okay so neurons use that axon to send signals from one cell to another exactly and the dendrites are like the receivers from the previous cells so think of all the brain cells lined up like a bunch of palm trees laying down next to each other with a fat end down to the trunk and the roots and then another fat end down to the trunk and the roots the mm -hmm. thing is these synapses can come with a variety of shapes so it's not always shaped that 
that way. Sometimes there are lots of dendrites, sometimes there are lots of axons, sometimes there are lots of synapses, and they can connect to multiple cells at the same time. So you can make trillions of different connections between all these different cells. It's a big rat's nest of wiring. That's right. Yeah. And so, so you're talking about electrochemical signals. What, what does that mean? What so, are these neurons sending to each other? Great question. So without getting too technical, essentially in the brain, there's the sodium ions and potassium ions. Mm-hmm. They're both positively charged. That's why they're called ions. And there are just simply fewer electrons than there are protons. So it's positive. But the cells, they want to be balanced. So they need to move these positive molecules around right? Uh, to make sure everything's always balanced. Nature loves balance. And this happens through what's called an ion channel. Right? Makes sense. So there's a sodium ion channel and there's a potassium ion channel but imagine like our palm tree is actually like a palm tree boat so the sodium is slowly leaking into the boat Mm. and there's already potassium in the boat so it's slowly leaking out of the boat okay and the tree has to pump that sodium out to kind of keep the balance but when they want to send a signal they'll open up that leak they'll let sodium ions flood into the boat and then the cell becomes positively charged because there's so many ions in there and it can use that positive charge to kind of squirt onto the next cell some positive ions because it again has to pump it out this is all called an action potential so the roots of the tree squirt some of these ions onto the next neuron and then the next neuron's like oh There's a bunch of new ions here. I'm going to open up my channels, accept those in, be positively charged, and send on to the next and do that over and over and over again. So that is the electrochemical part. So what are thoughts made of? They are made of that. Literally, at a cellular level, it's ions moving across synaptic gaps from one synapse to the dendrites of another cell every couple milliseconds. So Mm. like 0.0002 seconds is how long it takes to do that whole process. So what role do neurotransmitters play, right? Like I've heard terms like dopamine, yeah, oxytocin, that sort of thing. They affect how this process happens, the speed at which it happens or where those signals may go. But in terms of how they specifically affect, every one of them is going to affect it slightly differently. Like mm-hmm. you may have heard of something called myelin, which is what makes them go so fast. It, imagine the root of our, or imagine the trunk of our palm tree again. Right. That whole thing, that axon, as it's called, is coated in this myelin, which is to help things move really, really fast. Right. Like a like a slippery, buttery coat. Yeah. And you slide down the palm tree faster. <laughs> makes you really slide down. Um, but all of that is like the boring, super fast actual biological answer right because the thought part isn't really the ion moving from one place to another we're not like oh that one ion is the memory of your third grade teacher you know moving around yeah in your brain it's the pattern of that and the frequency of those patterns and how those cells communicate with each other and why they choose to communicate with you know the brain cell on the left rather than the brain cell on the right Mm. we have no idea Hmm. why they do that to me if i could think of a metaphor it sounds like a neuron firing is like a brush stroke and a thought is like a painting that's yeah I like think a that lot of accurate. brush strokes all together right but we don't quite have figured out like what makes all these brush strokes into a cohesive painting is that what i'm getting yeah totally like if i were to grab a paint brush mm-hmm. and start painting on a canvas eventually it would become a painting even if i'm bad at it right it's going to become something um and that you could i think that's a perfectly good analogy because each one of those cells is part of that whole and eventually it's gonna it's gonna make something Hmm. i mean we know how the action potential process works really well we've figured that all out but how the brain translates those into you know someone imagining julian you for example in a dress flawlessly belting out the opera from fifth element while dancing on aladdin's carpet flying over you know disneyland i don't know what I'm going to Disneyland. I am going to Disneyland next week as well. I'm going this week, so maybe that's... Yeah. This this episode not sponsored by any mice. None whatsoever. By anybody, as far (laughs) as I know, but especially not Disneyland. But how... That whole chain of events, right, that you're dancing on a carpet, singing, and wearing a dress, you can picture that. Sure. What makes you able to do that? All of these frequency of electrochemical processes. And we just haven't figured out exactly like how to manipulate that and and yeah, how our brain it. interprets it. 
okay, because our brain is essentially watching all of this happen, and parts of our brain are saying, oh, that frequency means this. That in this area of the brain at, you know, in this way means this. And uh, we, we don't. We, we, we haven't, don't we haven't have gotten that. Uh, so our brain, we are as good at understanding the art of our brains as I am at understanding art. Nailed it. Okay, cool. Good. Yeah. Got it. So we process all these input changes in all these different parts of the brain constantly. And somehow we still, again, don't know how this works. But what we do know is we know memory. We know how memory works. We have pretty solid hypotheses for this mm. and some biological basis for it too. So when you want to make a memory, a thought, for example, that you want to hang on to for a while, like the memory of your third grade teacher, maybe you thought that he or she was great, yeah. and you want to hang on to that memory. So those signals would be routed to the hippocampus, which is part of your brain that helps control memory. And it's one of the places in the brain that makes new brain cells and synaptic connections. So the connections themselves are part of the process of making memory. They actually do the memory making. So we know that the synapses are involved with that. But the neuroscientists think that we encode those memories in different ways. So you have a visual memory. You have an acoustic memory, you have a tactile or touch-based memory, and you have a semantic or meaning-based memory. Mm. So an example might be if I tell you uh, a person named Baker, you know, Jim Baker, you yeah. know, you might forget their name because a name does, has, is inherently meaningless. However, if I tell you Jim Baker is a baker, Oh, yeah. Now you're like, oh, I'm going to remember Jim That's Baker. Easy. That guy's a baker. He's a name is Baker. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Like, you're going to remember that. So you remember that because of the connection. That's that semantic memory, right. not necessarily an inherently unmeaningful thing. It's going to have trouble remembering. So your short-term memory we know can hold about 9 to 15 things based on studies done with recall. Long-term memory has functionally unlimited storage, uh, but things are encoded because we evolved differently to use these different parts of our brain. So we've got uh, the short-term memory, we typically recall things in order. So the synapses are physically created or physically encoded mm. to recall things in a way of like remembering the order of a deck of cards or a set of numbers, a phone number. Yeah. Um, and they don't last very long. But long-term memory is recalled semantically. It's based on meaning. Mm. And so we know, although we don't know entirely why, we know that we encode memory using these synapses in such a way where we have that meaning attached to them. So we have to retrace our steps when looking for something, right? Because we're trying to, we have all this semantic memory where we're trying, okay, I was here, I was there, I did this, and then I did that. Remembering where you parked, you know, you might like go to the floor you're on and be like, okay, how many rows did I walk by? Mm. What other, did I see that car? Did I see, was it? that color of parking structure like all of those little meanings you add to to try and recall long-term memory yeah that makes sense like i have to help my wife katie studying a lot and i feel like she tries to just remember things wrote in a vacuum and she really struggles and like i tend to give her kind of connections between things mm -hmm. like she was studying anatomy the other day and she's studied like the kidney and then she's like the the adrenal gland what where's that and i'm like well ad means above and renal means kidney adrenal above the kidney mm. like that sort of thing and that's really yeah. helpful for me yeah and uh, and when she understood that, I think she remembered a lot more easily. It clicked for her. Yeah. yeah you really added that semantic meaning. That, that's awesome. Um, I think that's a great example because what I, what I was going to use is an example that I, you know, just a mnemonic that you can create. Any mnemonic, whether it's an acronym, you know, maybe you would never remember the National Aeronautic and Spacing Administrationing place. But if you just call it NASA, you're like, oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Easy to remember. And I don't need to know all of those other things. Yeah. Um, but if you needed to, you have that like mnemonic to help you yeah. kind of figure it out. It drives me nuts that the name of the precursor to NASA, though, the acronym yeah. is slightly different. Ugh, and you it's, know? it's grosser. It's NACA. Yeah. It's the Ugh. National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics. It's not yeah. National like ah, yeah. doesn't have administration it's advisory committee anyway we did we're, we're doing better now we're it makes me now. upset about, about i can tell naca <laughs> being so nasa is so much better do Just you say. think that naca had neko wafers and they were naca necos because they ate that terrible candy back then. Uh, yeah, that was the best candy that had been invented. And they up were to just like the fifties. My goodness, have you had these neko wafers? <laughs> 
this, all, everybody also was, was British before the 50s. Everybody who said anything ever at any point. Hello. Hello. I've just tried these new wafers, wafers from Neko. Just flew in from Alabama. <laughs> they remind me of biscuits my mama used to make. Where was I? <laughs> NACA. Right. Acronyms. Acronyms. Mnemonics. That's how I learned to remember the noble gases, by the way. Oh, yeah? Yeah. The farthest east part, the rightest part of the uh, periodic table are yeah. noble gases. Gases don't react to things. Um, so it's, you know, hydrogen, uh, helium, and so on. Uh, so I made a mnemonic of uh, Superman is in a hydrogen balloon, or in a helium balloon, rather. Yeah. And on top of it is a neon and in the neon is Krypton Superman, and and so he's wearing argyle socks, argon, and like so I had this whole mnemonic. It's a very complicated mnemonic. I came up with that in high school, and I still remember it. I My, don't, so that, that kind of crap works. When I was learning to play guitar, um, I lived near a bowling alley named after a famous but expired pro bowler named Earl Anthony, and so. Uh, my memory of guitar strings, E-A-D-G-B-E, is Earl Anthony Dead Guy Bowler Extraordinaire. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. I would have remembered guitar strings. Earl Anthony Dead Dead Guy guy Bowler Bowler Extraordinaire. Extraordinaire. Wow. Semantic meaning. Helpful. Okay. Yeah. And so what happens is your brain, when you thought of uh, Earl... Anthony, dead guy, bowler extraordinaire. Uh, we, your hippocampus was actually growing new synapses, and they were physically built to create some kind of frequency and chemistry system that let us recall that information. How? We have no idea. Dang it! This I is know. what I want to know! Yeah, so do the scientists. Tell me your secrets, brain. Why are you so cagey? So bottom line, we don't know what thoughts are, uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't read them. So this is what you asked me about earlier. Oh, I don't like where this is going. So Japanese scientists, and a number of other scientists have worked on this as well. You know, you know what mid-journey is, and Dolly 2, and stable diffusion. Right, all these AI image generating uh, softwares now that are available. Right. right. So what they had done is they were trained on all these different images and all these different styles, and some human or group of humans told the AI, okay, this is an anime style of this person, and in this picture are is a cat and a towel and whatever else is, you know, a lo-fi girl and whatever else is there. Um, so the AI image generator... After it's shown all of these things, it is able to identify them. So let's say you show stable diffusion a bunch of dogs. Now it's stable dog fusion. And and it will be able to identify and potentially recreate dogs that never had been shown to it. Because it's mm-hmm. like, well, this is probably this is what a dog looks like. I also came up with another one that I thought you would like. If you just showed mid-journey, but it's just pictures of a person named Jamie, then it would be mid- mid-Jamie. Mid-Jamie. What if it was mid-Jamie? If it was Jamie's midsection. Yeah. Mid, mid mid Jamie. Jamie. I think you have to really emphasize mid mid Jamie journey. Mid mid Jamie journey. <laughs> so uh all of those are described. You got Jamie on a bicycle with a white shirt, you got Jamie in a tree with a purple hat, and the more detail added to the images, the better mid Jamie mid journey is gonna be. Right. Mid mid journey Jamie Jimmer Jeremy Jamie. Jingleheimer Schmidt. <laughs> So if you go to Midjourney and you say you want something like a picture of Jamie painting with a bicycle for legs, then it can combine all of those things and create something. So imagine if we did that for brains. We mm. trained an AI, like stable brain fusion, mm. and we said, here are a bunch of brain images. What is the brain thinking about? Oh, okay. So that's what they did. Oh, uh, wh- mm, mm, this is weird. Okay. Yeah. So they had eight volunteers, they showed them images, and they took thousands of brain images of them looking at other images. Like in an fMRI, I In an fMRI. So for those who don't know, fMRI is functional magnetic resonance imager. Essentially, it's a big magnet that they use to see where blood is flowing within your brain to see what parts of your brain are active. Right. They showed the AI that they trained, based on stable diffusion, these brain images and told the AI what the brain images were seeing, never showing them the original images that the people were looking at. Oh, okay. And had the AI draw what they think the people were looking at. Mm. 
Do you want to see what they came up with? Yeah. How close were they? I think you're going to be excited about it. Okay. Ready? I'm going to turn my laptop again. Okay. So the first one. That's a snowboarder coming down a half pipe. So this is what the person in the fMRI saw. Okay. This is what the AI generated. Okay. Whoa! It's definitely like the outline of a human figure like in snow. It's like a white background. It looks like kind of a person hunched over a sort of board thing. I Like I can see where it's coming from. Right? Yeah. Okay. Here's another one. Ready? Okay. So it's this is what the people in the machine were shown. Right. So it's like a woman walking away from what looks like kind of a barn structure behind her. There's some trees on either side of a path. And here's what the AI saw. Oh my goodness, it just looks like a path with trees on either side. Like a big tunnel. Yeah. Wow, like yeah, in a forest kind of thing. So it got some of the details, but not all of them. Okay, this one I think you're going to like. Okay, it's a teddy bear with a purple bow. It's a nice, nice teddy bear with a purple bow. Yeah. It's a it's a bear with an orange bow. It got the bow all wrong. <laughs> but it's definitely got it's, like a bow tie. It's definitely a bear. It's it's like a hideous like reject teddy bear from a factory, but it's the bullet points are there. You know? Yeah. Like the, the if I were to describe in text what I was looking at, the descriptions would be almost identical. Right. I'd you be know? like that's a teddy bear. This one's really ugly. Yeah. <laughs> Real sad reject teddy bear. So I'd like to think that just like our brain interprets the waves, the signals, the frequencies, and turns them into thoughts and images, sounds, feelings, and meaning, this computer is sort of watching the brain do that mm -hmm. and guessing, kind of mimicking that process. That's really impressive. That's what I like to think. The researchers uh, are saying, you know, we don't know what the thoughts are, but if we may, they don't say this, but I'm saying like, if we did this, this was with thousands of images. Yeah. Something like a stable diffusion, a mid journey. They've got, they've seen millions, billions of images that have all been, you know, described in some way so that the AI knows what is in the image. Mm -hmm. We don't have that many brain scans, but over time we're going to get more. If it became easier to scan one's brain, you know. And as the, you know, image AIs get more trained, they'll just get better at this. They're still in, you know, fairly early stages, right? Like right. they're, they're going to get much more efficient at seeing images and quickly like learning from them and being able to, you know, take prompts and, and produce something new. They're going to get a lot faster at that. Yeah. So yeah, you might have a brain reading computer in the not too distant future. So I agree, but I want to caution. The researchers yeah. do say it is not brain reading. Oh, okay. Because they can only tell what you're thinking then. Mm. They can't tell what you're thinking now. So if you were to put this AI, if you were to imagine, you know, dancing on a carpet over Disneyland while singing the Fifth Element Opera in a dress, not only would it be illegal in several states, unfortunately, <laughs> but... You, it would have no idea what you were thinking because it wasn't one of the images that the brain scans were trained on, right? Mm. So it only knows how to identify those few images that those few people saw in their brains at that time. So it's really just trying to reproduce whatever eight images that they were trained on with thousands and thousands of brain scans. But still, you know, like you just said, AI in 2013 was nothing relative yeah. to 2023. And brain scanning technology in 1990 was completely different than 2020. So maybe by 2070, brain scanning will be something you can do at home and we'll have lots and lots and lots and lots of brain scans to work with. Oh, this this is going to be a problem, though. And like when they start being like using them for I'm thinking like lie detectors or something yeah. like, where were you on this night? And then they like scan your brain for like the images that come to your mind. Yeah. And then I, I don't know. I mean, who knows? I it's, don't know. The future's freaky. It's, it terrifies me. And I love it. That's really cool though. They're using AI to understand real eye. I don't know. <laughs> H I. Yeah. Human, human int. I don't know. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. So we'd need millions of brain scans to really know what our thoughts are and how to interpret them. But what a thought is made of is a bunch of ions moving around and some yeah. frequencies and some chemicals. The collective movement of all these neurons firing off. That's right. Yeah. All right. I will accept that answer. Thank you so much. More research is needed. I think for now we're going to take a break. If you've turned into this 
Turned into it? You've turned into one. You've turned into a science comedy podcast. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm a podcast. Am I going to be late to work? If you're tuned into this science and comedy podcast, chances are that you are someone who loves learning and having a blast while doing it. If it wasn't clear, Trace and I are the same way. We thrive on learning new things because it not only enriches our lives, helps us learn new skills, but also makes us really cool at parties. Is that what we are at parties? Are we? We are, right? We're cool. I mean, when you're at my house and I'm at your house, definitely. But like, oh. Other houses. Anyway, <laughs> this is all to say I am super excited about our new sponsor, Brilliant. Yay. Can I kind of get a little like, you know, in my feels for a second? Oh, yeah. Get those feels. Elaborate, please. Hey, I see what you did there. I am exactly the kind of person that Brilliant was made for. I have always been interested in math, physics, computer science. When I had the chance to study these things in college years ago, I was also really intimidated by them. Yeah. And I avoided taking these classes. And honestly, I regret it. I'm going back now. I'm taking classes at my local community college. I'm loving it. Yeah. But with a family and work, traditional classes like that, I'm finding them really hard to actually fit into my life. So I was really excited when you told me that Brilliant was going to be a sponsor. That's awesome, man. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. If you don't know what it is, by the way, out there. It's an interactive learning platform with so many lessons on topics that I always wanted to explore, and I can do them at my own pace, on my schedule, and in a way that keeps me engaged. You can learn by doing on their website or with their mobile apps, and there are thousands of different interactive lessons in STEM subjects all across the platform. Their lessons are engaging and interactive. You can brush up on like algebra or advanced math, multivariable calculus, differential equations, computer science, Python programming. You can even learn about cutting edge stuff like large language models, neural networks, the things that are powering AI today. Large language models really big right now. <laughs> large language models. You can learn large language models. <laughs> <laughs> it's only Gaelic, though. The large language that you can learn is Gaelic. Yeah, ship that. I'm in. We can finally communicate with the Scots. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, anyway. Wherever you are in your learning journey, there is a brilliant course that will help you get to the next level. Or, you know, just be basic enough to get you an understanding that you can go and work with. Yeah, they're always adding new courses too. They just launched a ton of lessons focused on analyzing data. That's cool. That's really cool. I think the world would be a better place if everyone had to take a stats class. Oh, totally. And if you haven't taken one... Here's your chance. You could just go take a statistics class and make Julian so, so happy. I would appreciate that. Try it out. You can try Brilliant for free for 30 days. Just visit brilliant.org slash absurd or click the link in the show notes. Once again, that's brilliant.org slash absurd. When you sign up, you'll get 20% off the annual premium subscription and it supports the show even just trying it out. So go ahead, check it out. Maybe get sucked into a few lessons. Trace and I are going to be here with the rest of the episode when you get back. If you get back. Oh, I hope you get back. They come back and they know more than us about everything. <laughs> They're just like, these guys are idiots. <laughs> their brains are the size of this huge brain coming out of their cranium. I've absorbed all knowledge. Why do I listen to this podcast of dummies? I have no time for your absurd antics. <laughs> But I would definitely take one on large language models. Cool. A Scottish AI robot that nobody can understand. Sorry, <laughs> turn on the lights. Sorry. Arm the burglar alarm. It supports the show. It'll be great. And we're back. Okay, so thanks, Julian. All right, Trace. So for my question this episode, uh, we made a bit of a teaser trailer, obviously, and we were just coming up with, you know, ostensibly silly questions to use for the trailer, and you suggested one that I wanted to take, and that is, why don't we plug volcanoes with concrete? I mean, it's a good question, right? I, like, I, I thought of it because you remember a few years ago when they were talking about whether you could blow up tornadoes with nuclear weapons? I do recall that conversation, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, that's stupid. But also... But I want to know. Kind, like, could you? Like, like, I know that we don't... never do it. Obviously, we don't do it, but like... Tell me the specifics of why. Right. Like if I had, if I was playing a video game and I could like pluck a giant ball of concrete out of, the, or like, you know, and just put it over a volcano and be like, boonk. Yeah. Just plug it on in there. Yeah. Right. Right. What, what Would that just be like, oh, 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 
the earth would just be like, oh. Oh, good. You saved the oh. town below. Good job. Uh, Congrats. I was trying to erupt here. <laughs> Excuse me. I guess I'll just go somewhere else. I mean, yeah. Back but... to the bottom of the ocean floor with me. Yeah. All the magma in there. Well, I looked into it because I actually kind of love it. It's it's a question that I feel like is kind of childish and silly and dumb. And at the same time, my adult man brain is like and i still want to know more please tell me more (laughs) so that's what i did so first of all i just i chose to address the question in the tradition of this show i like that we take sometimes the question itself in a very literal sense and we examine it however we want yeah so the question was why don't we plug them with concrete Right? Ooh, yeah, that was the question. So it wasn't like, what if we plug them with concrete? We haven't assumed there's a mechanism for it. It was, why don't we? I love it. So let's start there. First of all, it would be friggin' difficult. Okay. To say the very least. I don't know if you know this. Uh, volcanoes are quite hot, as it turns what? out. If it's if it's flowing, even if you've got like hardened volcanic rock, you know, it can still be really hot for days, weeks. Like it could take a full year for this stuff to solidify from what I was finding. And if you were to, you know, take a, a concrete cement truck and uh, like a big mixer, you know, the barrel mixers that you see yeah. on, at construction sites, right? Well, these things are on rubber tires. Oh, yeah. And and rubber and uh, really, really, really hot rocks. I don't understand why that's a problem. I don't know if you saw the documentary Dante's Peak. <laughs> where they just set up a but line of fire trucks. In that documentary, there was a point where a Jeep, I think, some kind of vehicle spun its tires in magma. They were trying to escape right. the volcano. As um, one does. With Pierce Brosnan was in this documentary, I think. It was excellent. Really educational. <laughs> so fortunate for the documentarians that a movie star yeah. was where this volcano was erupting. Just so happened to be there. That's great. Uh, and was able to escape. That'll bring in the viewers. Thank goodness for his family. And his career. That's and, right. and James Bond. At, at the time. Yeah. And yeah, he just spun his tires in that magma or whatever. What's the difference between magma and lava? Ma- magma ha- is lava that hasn't erupted yet. Oh, so then just lava. Lava. Yeah, just spinning. Because if you're in magma, I think you've got bigger problems. Yeah, you're uh, you're trapped in, in the <laughs> you're earth. inside the vol- earth. Yeah, l- the molten magma yeah. layer. Then you're Hillary Swank in the documentary The Core. Also very lucky that that documentarian <laughs> was able to follow her on that adventure. Are we going to do a podcast of two guys who don't understand the concept <laughs> of fiction? <laughs> like everything... The documentary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of feels like we're there already. Okay. So, uh, yeah, the documentary British TV show Top Gear, right? They had a, ah. an episode where they took like a big Toyota pickup truck and drove it up to an active volcano in Iceland and tried to scoop up a rock. And just like approaching the mouth of the volcano, the tires were starting to like catch fire and they had to have like a, a alcohol-based cooling system like evaporative cooling and they would just constantly be pouring alcohol on the rubber tires and even if they sat still for too long it would you know the alcohol would all evaporate and then that spot on the tire would start melting and catching fire so that's tough you know and and concrete trucks when they're fully laden with concrete they're uh they're they're pretty heavy Mm. they're you know they're about forty thousand kilograms altogether heavy that's that's quite heavy yeah yeah so um, you couldn't uh, you couldn't really do that, you know, <laughs> without like a road that isn't trying to set the truck on fire. So that's tough. Uh, what about airlifting? Yeah, that you was going to be my next question. Of what course about, it was. What about airlifting? What then? about a what about a big helicopter? What if I took that that barrel rolly you know cement truck and I just put it on a really big plane and we went over the volcano with a bunch of them and we just dumped them. You know, we had their little spouts be like, and then they just dumped all of the cement like that you needed. I guess we'll assume it's a small volcano, you know, a small cano. A small cano. Yeah. Yeah. What if we did that? Okay. Well, the biggest helicopter in the world is a Russian helicopter called the MI-26. It's huge. It makes other very large helicopters look like little remote control toys. Okay? Oh, cool. It's it's quite large. It can lift about 20,000 kilograms, right? Which is about a half full cement truck. Oh. Yeah. So it can't even lift that much yeah. relative to a cement truck. No. 
Huh. No, so you would you would need you would have to do it with this enormous helicopter, literally the biggest helicopter you could find. You would have to do like half a cement truck. Oh, Julian, at a this time. Will, that's easy. We just okay. Get, we just get two. It would it we would take a while. Those. It would take a while, right? <laughs> okay, but let's say you did it. I kind of fell down the the rabbit hole of uh, looking into cement because one thing I wanted to know: if you're pouring a bunch of cement. Onto lava, does the cement melt? Mm. Is it cement or concrete? Because oh, I asked this oh. only because I've been corrected in the past. Thank you. Thank you actually for correcting me because you're right. That's a, that is an excellent question and I should clarify because I always look up cement truck. But ac- more accurately, it's a concrete mixing truck. Oh, Cement in concrete is the kind of slurry paste that binds the whole thing together, right? You've got cement, which is like baked clay and limestone that's been powdered and and mixed with water. And then you've got aggregate. And the aggregate is just, it can be sand or it can be more coarse and stony, whatever. And the cement binds around this. You know, the aggregate's cheap. The cement is more expensive to make. So you want something that's like rocky and cheap and sturdy, okay? All these different things melt at different temperatures and the, the internet is very divided about what's the melting point of what i found some that said oh the cement is going to melt at like 1500 degrees c and some that said oh well the cement will it'll it'll melt closer to 800 c and then some that said uh like a science direct article that was like well the cement loses its structural integrity at 200 c which is kind of actually worryingly that's quite low low. (laughs) yeah that's surprising yeah Yeah, and it was like studying cement that was in like a metal foundry. So it was near like really, really hot uh, metal all the time. And I was like, well, if lava doesn't even get to these temperatures, who cares? Lava has a range of temperatures it's at. You can roughly tell based on the color of it. If it's yellow, it's about 1000 to 1200 Celsius. If it's orange, it's uh, cooler than that, about 800. And red, red hot, actually the coolest of the lava, about 600 to 800 Celsius. You know, around that range to kind of start melting that cement, maybe. But even so, if it all crumbles and falls apart and you dump a bunch of rocks in there, it's still not hot enough to melt the aggregate portion of the cement. So you're still effectively clogging it with a bunch of rocks. Yeah. Which I guess we could just do. Or I had another idea. Uh, You know, lava, when it cools, hardens. Oh. So what if we got something that really, you know, cooled off this this lava very quickly? What if we, like, poured a lot of water into it? Oh, I was going to say liquid nitrogen. You're insane. I feel like it would be more (laughs) economical to just do water. But let's imagine we did water. Right, we just scooped it up with those really those, cold water. Yeah, those you know firefighting airplanes or whatever, and we dumped it on the lava. Any of these, right? Cement, bunch of rocks, water. We plug it up, right? Easy. All of these ideas are terrible. What? They're oh, all come on. Think of the great noise it would make. They're aside from being wildly impractical, it's all making your problem. So much worse. <gasps> yeah. What? Yeah, it would be catastrophic because here's here's the thing. So volcanoes are forming. We just put a, a Tupperware lid essentially over this broiling magma now. Okay, when you put it that way, that yeah, doesn't because that that's what happens, it sound right? Not as good. See, like volcanoes, a lot of them happen when you've got you know like a, a subduction zone uh, where you know some of the Earth's crust is sliding under some other crust. And the crust that's going down underneath has a lot of um, hydrated minerals, right? They've they've mixed with water. This is how concrete, or more accurately, cement, hardens. Hmm. It's not that the water evaporates and it dries. It's that the water mixes with the calcium compound in the cement, and the calcium compound takes the water molecule and gives up calcium and also like a OH, you know, ion, and that crystallizes and turns the whole thing into a solid slab. It's not oh. evaporative, it's a chemical reaction. Oh, cool. Which is a cool side note. I didn't know that. Yeah, fascinating, right? Well, when you get these subduction zones where like, things that had, you know, water and minerals are going underwater, a lot of those minerals have also done something similar. They've picked up, like, basically water molecules and attached them to themselves. Well, when these things, you know, come under pressure and start to melt, the water molecules are like a 
turn into a vapor, you know, like a gaseous vapor. And they make the whole thing a lot more volatile and they build up a lot of pressure and this wells up through the earth and can, you know, eventually break through and form a volcano. If that is capped, the pressure is going to keep building up. Yeah, got it. I think you see where this is going. Yeah. So if the pressure builds up, obviously one way that this can equalize itself, talk about nature like an equilibrium, is the rocks above it crack and they allow all that pressure out at once, which brings a ton of ash and lava and gases just shooting up in a gigantic eruption, right? That's the obvious way. Or if your lid is strong enough, the side of the volcano might not be. (gasps) Yeah. Oh, no. So if we plug, say, the top of a volcano, like one from science class, like that's a big, big pointy one. Yeah. And we just plug the top. Yes. It's going to find it. Nature finds a way. Yeah. Yeah. You're dealing with really, really enormous forces, right? Like giant geological things. And it's not as simple as like, let's just put a cork in that and walk, call it a day. (laughs) You know, there's, there's still big things happening underneath the surface. So it can erupt out the side of the volcano. So that's exactly what happened with Mount St. Helens. It had like this kind of bubble of hot welling up magma forming on the side and eventually that all just burst out which by the way the uh the name of the bubble on the side is known as a cryptodome oh which i think is a much better name for an arena than crypto.com arena like we have here in los angeles i agree and also (laughs) it does sound a little more I don't know, dangerous. Cryptodome. Welcome to the Cryptodome. Welcome to the Cryptodome. Yeah. So Mount St. Helens burst out of its side. I think it killed eight people, right, who were caught in something called a pyroclastic flow. Oh, that's the scariest thing ever. Yeah. So like a normal volcanic explosive eruption can also form a pyroclastic flow. Uh, They happen when the ash that's ejected, like, up into the air, you know, cools down, becomes more dense and comes crashing back down to the earth. And it forms like this wall of ash and lava, like blobs and gas. And it can go, it can go, it can go kind of terrifyingly fast. Yeah. I was going to say, it's going to be, it's going to, I'm like irrational fears are, I don't want to collect them, but this is one. Right. Right. So a pyroclastic flow to, keep you up at night they can move at 80 kilometers an hour which is pretty quick that's you know 50 miles an hour in freedom units or they have been observed moving as fast as 700 kilometers an hour which is 450 miles an hour which i can't help notice that's pretty that's 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 faster than say Chris Pratt can run. Yeah, and he runs fast. I He's, saw in those yeah. in those dinosaur documentaries. He was in the Navy, you know, oh. so he can run pretty fast. Yeah. He was also in space. I don't know if you he, He's been to space, that guy. Oh, good for him. Other, Wait, are you getting your Chris's confused again? I think I have the right Chris this time. <laughs> I actually had to think about it before I said Chris Pratt. I'm not going to lie. I was like, I which which Chris? Which Chris? Oh my god, Julian. Pratt. Do you have Chris blindness? <laughs> I hear you can fix that with gene editing. <laughs> called CRISPR. Yeah, nice. yeah I thought you, you saw where I was gene, going with it. I thought you meant gene editing, like Gene's also a name. <laughs> and then I, I accidentally <laughs> call you... all the famous Chris's Gene. Yeah. Hey, Gene. Oh, Gene Evans, my hey, favorite gene. Captain America actor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, do you want to know what happens when a human body's in a pyroclastic flow? Oh, God, no. Yeah, you probably don't. Uh, so first of all, I have to give credit to the person who basically answered all of these questions in a Forbes article. His name was Robin Andrews, and it was just like, he's a doctor of experimental volcanology, which sounds like a really badass field. And his article opened up with, uh, a lot of school children ask me, what if we plug volcanoes? But I bet some adults wonder too. And I'm like, yes, yes, I do. But (laughs) yes, a lot of children also (laughs) read Forbes. (laughs) But he, he describes what happens, you know, if uh, a pyroclastic flow is is coming toward you. And uh, my favorite is he's so matter of fact about it. He goes, um, you will combust. Oh, is the, just you'll what? combust. 
Your skin will rupture and become blackened by the severe heat of the gas before most oh. of the ash even touches you oh. microseconds later. If you're inside a building, that's not going to do anything for you. The temperature of the air in the environment can sometimes be around 300 degrees Celsius, so that'll destroy anything living within moments. You know, you breathe it in, your lungs get seared by the hot, hot air, and even if you survive that, you know, heat shock, you, you would you would die of asphyxiation uh, moments later. Oh, uh, if you're wearing any clothes, those are burned off and gone. Any metal touching your skin, that's that's just gonna burn against your skin the whole time it's touching you and sear you. It it's gonna be terrible. Oh, and when you get actually hit, so this is just like the gas that's right in front of it, like the hot not air. Even, We're not oh even in God. the flow. That's still you know moments away when the flow hits you. Your muscles will suddenly contract and you <gasps> curl up. Oh. Right? It's like you know, like a spider yeah. getting torched. Yeah, you too. You're you're not you're not much better. Uh so you, you you curl up into those fetal positions, right? You ever seen the people after After Pompeii. Pompeii, exactly. I've been there. Yeah, they're everywhere. Yeah. So here here's more nightmare fuel for you. Oh god. So some of the victims from Mount Vesuvius were found with their skulls blown apart. So you remember how like the the problem with capping the volcano is the the pressure of that evaporated water and gas builds up until it's explosive? Yeah. Yes, kind of the same thing happened with these people. Oh, no. Like their brains boiled and trapped gases were released in their heads and the pressure built up inside their skulls and it blew their heads apart. Wow. So volcanoes are mind-blowing. In a literal sense, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I hate it. I wish you, like, I can't read thoughts, but I think I know what those people were thinking right right at the moment their heads were exploding. It was probably ouch. Yeah. I mean, I just keep thinking about the great band Hot Hot Heat and how bandages, bandages aren't going to help you. Those will be your dying thoughts. <laughs> when they have the mind-reading technology, after you get buried by a pyroclastic flow, but they scan you know, the preserved remnants of your brain and tell an AI, it's just going to play that song. <laughs> Honestly, that'd be a great montage of volcanic eruption explosions and stuff. I'm into it. One, one we can edit together later. So the uh, USGS uh, had, had this note instead. A better use of concrete employed during one eruption of Etna is to divert the lava away from populated areas using concrete blocks. Oh. So don't don't cap the volcano because you've made your life much, much, much worse, but let it, like, trickle out, you know, try and have not a big pressure difference between the inside of the volcano and outside. Yeah. And then when it comes oozing out more slowly, you just kind of nudge it off somewhere let it ooze that way yeah just go on go on over there you yeah you go settle down in that field yeah off to the right of the town wow yeah amazing all right well now i'm, I'm gonna check that off my list not gonna plug any volcanoes with concrete yeah. that's for sure even if you were probably a multi-billionaire that could afford the construction project right. wow cool volcanoes are awesome they sure are and terrifying, and I don't want to go near one. But I respect the people who do. Oh, we went to Hawaii to go to Volcano Nas Volcanoes National Park, and it was the only time in the last like several decades that it wasn't erupting. Were you hoping to be like buried in a while well, thinking no, of it hot just hot heat? Slowly oozes out over like decades. It was like erupting constantly, and then it had this crazy eruption, and then we went, and then there was nothing. Yeah, and now it's erupting again. Kind of just shot its load, and then it's yeah it's done. It's so. in the refractory period. Yeah, and then it started up again. How relatable. <laughs> Speaking of relatable, let's hear a word from our sponsor of this episode. <laughs> They'll love that transition. <laughs> okay, and we're back. Thanks so much, Julian. That, wow. So, and thank you for telling me that robots are are figuring out how to make mind pictures based on our thoughts and also giving me nightmares i'm glad we could exchange mutually exchange these nightmares mutual nightmares that's the that's the title of this episode <laughs> <laughs> if you guys want to submit a question you can go into the show notes or you can go to our website 
thatsabsurdshow.com. Uh, there, there's a little form. All you got to do is click on Ask a Question, and you can do it right there on the website. It'll go right into our little inbox, and hopefully we'll have it on a future episode. If you include your name and some of your info, we'll give you a shout-out. So please, please ask us some silly questions that you think we should research. You can also find the show on That's Absurd Show on Twitter or on Instagram. I hope you like the show. Make sure you rate us, like us, make sure you tell your friends. So a lot of things to make sure. We've got a lot of homework on this show. So, you know. Make a list. <laughs> make a to-do list. Make it, Go through this outro. Check everything <laughs> off one at a time. Please. Then report back. Please. Please do it. <laughs> you can find me and Julian on the internets uh, as well. I'm at Trace Dominguez on most things. And Julian's at Hug It Out. Correct. Which is an awesome username. Thank you. And thank you guys for listening. I'm Trace. And that's Julian. We are co-hosts. <laughs> we did decide on that. And have a great day. <laughs> and have a great day. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>